Welcome to Both Sides TV. I decided to do something a little bit different this week. I really wanted to promote an up-and-coming VC that I think you might hear a lot about in the next 10 years or so. So with me today is uh, Fred Wilson of a firm called Union Square Ventures. Welcome. Thank you. And we're in Los Angeles. How is it that you're actually in Los Angeles? What are you doing here? I'm spending the winter in Los Angeles. Joanne, the winter. The Joanne and I are spending the winter in Los Angeles because we can because our kids are now all up and out of the house, and we, uh, you know, that's not, that's not something that you would celebrate. I mean, I love having my kids around, but we decided that if that's what was gonna be, we were gonna make the best of it, and one of the things you can do when your kids aren't with you anymore is you can be wherever you wanna be. Yeah. And so we decided that we would spend um, the winter on the West Coast, and Joanne's from LA. Yep. Uh, I chased her out here when we were in college, um, and uh, spent a semester out here when she was doing an internship, and we've always had a soft spot for Los Angeles. And, and she has family here as she well. She has family, and so it's worked out great. We've been here since the middle of January. We're going back next week yeah. to New York, and uh, there are a lot of great things about Los Angeles. Well, I know this is your first winter in Los Angeles, but you've been here now a couple months. Like, What are your first-year observations about LA? About the tech? About the tech market, I mean. I think, I think we could observe that it's warm out. <laughs> yeah. I think that the tech market in LA is as robust as any market outside of San Francisco, yeah. uh, outside of the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, and you know that's not a diss on New York or Boston or Chicago or Austin or Seattle or anywhere else. It's just that uh, it's a big city. Yeah. Uh, it's got a couple of really big industries here um, that are getting impacted a lot by the tech uh, internet thing and uh, and there's a lot of engineers here yeah uh, people want to live here yeah so it's it's got all of the makings of a big important tech sector and there's some great companies yeah. right uh, that have already come out of here so you know I think it's it, it seems really really active and and uh, diverse it's not everybody doing like you know Hollywood stuff or anything like that there's lots of diversity and I think it's, um, there's a lot to be done here. And you're living on the west side of LA, and so you probably spend a little more time in Venice and Santa Monica, I presume. There's tech all over Los Angeles. But what I found interesting, I was talking to someone yesterday, and we were saying, he was spending time in, in Hollywood and West Hollywood, and he was saying every time he's in Santa Monica, he just bumps into tech people all the time, because right. it's not an industry town, Santa Monica and Venice. Right. You know, so I presume you're, Finding it reasonably easy to bump into VCs and, and entrepreneurs and startups and but I bump into people, you know, getting today I was today was this morning, um, we had an ant infestation in the I house heard. we're living in. I heard. <laughs> Ants took over our house. You left when, a cookie out or something? It wasn't my fault. Okay. <laughs> Did Joanne blame it on me? No, 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 no. She didn't. She it didn't. wouldn't I wouldn't put it past her. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I had breakfast with Joanne this morning, so I was hearing about the ant so infestation. So I, I mean, I couldn't eat breakfast. I mean, our kitchen was like taken over by ants. Yeah. It was gross. So I went out uh, to a little place uh, in Venice to get breakfast, and I'm sitting there having, uh, you know, yogurt and granola and uh, an orange juice, and I look up, and there's another investor. We sit down. We have an impromptu meeting. I mean, 
it, it definitely happens. And, and last time we had breakfast together, we sat down and there was an angel investor at the next table <laughs> yeah. over being pitched by an entrepreneur. Yeah, so when you need, that's when you need like the little like, you know, wall of silence, you know. So <laughs> the, the truth is it happens to me in San Francisco all the time, so much so that I remember once sitting with my partner next to a company that Yahoo had just bought. We'd just seen it announced. And I heard them talking about the transaction and all the details. And I finally had to stop them. And I said, listen, I don't want to be rude. We're going to move tables. It's nothing against you, but I want you to be able to talk about all these details and I work in your industry. Right. But it's interesting how, how loud people will talk about stuff on trains and airplanes and stuff. And I think people just are, you know, they're in the moment and they're caught up in what they're talking about and they don't realize that, you know, they're talking about confidential stuff, yeah. you know, which other people can hear. And, and in some, we will never be south of market in San Francisco, nor do, you know, is it our aspiration, but it is becoming on the west side of LA at least large pockets of entrepreneurs that you see all the time, which is great. Um, what I'd like to do, Fred, is I'd like to rewind if we could, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people today, I mean, you've been very successful as a VC, and a lot of people today may not know your whole journey. Right. So if we could, <coughs> I'd like to even just start with college. What did you study in college? Uh, mechanical engineering. Okay. My dad was a mechanical engineer, and I, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. I really... No, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at age 16. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at age 18. And nor did I know what I wanted to do with my life at age 22. But my, my dad um, was a mechanical engineer and uh, I felt like uh, if I followed in his footsteps that wouldn't be a horrible idea. I went to MIT, which is a great school, and uh, I sort of taught myself how to write software while I was at MIT doing a... Um, Essentially, uh, I had a job in a research laboratory at MIT. So I came out of MIT with a mechanical engineering degree, and the only real skill I had was I could write software. Yeah. Which is, turns out a pretty good thing to know how to do. What year did you graduate? 1983. And this is something, like I always talk about how I was a teenager programming, and it's almost taken for granted today, but knowing software in 1983 is a pretty rare thing. Well, I got a great job right out of school. You did what uh, out of school? Uh, I wrote software for an engineering firm that was building a brand new uh, destroyer for the U.S. Navy. And they wanted, uh, the Navy, for the very first time, wanted to model the ship in software. Okay. Uh, while it was getting designed in a CAD system, they also mm -hmm. wanted to simulate it in software so that they could uh, essentially see how it would perform before they even made one of them. Right. And so I, with a, a couple of other colleagues, essentially built a software model of, of the ship that okay. we were designing. And the coolest thing was that um, they wanted to know specifically, th this was the first ship that they made that had these huge uh, radar arrays on the superstructure. Mm -hmm. um, they were called Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, that was the kind mm -hmm. of radar. And they were really heavy. Yeah. And they were worried that putting these really heavy uh, radar arrays on the superstructure was going to change the... The, um, the engineering uh, performance, the, the, the performance, uh, structural performance of the ship. So they want us to tell us how it would perform in something called a shock test. Uh -huh. And so we simulated the shock test and we said, the Aegis radar arrays are gonna be fine. And mm -hmm. th these were like billion dollar things, right? Yeah. Like these were expensive things. They wanted to know they weren't gonna crack. Um, we said, but you know, these antennas up on the mast are gonna crack and fall off. And they're like, we've had those antennas on our ships for years. They're not going to crack and fall yeah. off. They take the ship off. 
they, they do this thing called a shock test. They, they basically light a shock, uh, they, they basically light Creative depth charges. or something. Like depth charge underneath yeah. the ship and they measure it. Yeah. And sure enough, the thing that we said was going to crack, cracked. Yeah. And so you had a software model that could predict it <laughs> and, based on math, right? And, and I didn't go to the shock test, but the engineering manager who I worked for came back and it was like high five. He's like, we're yeah. going to get the next 10 contracts because yeah. of that. You know? How long did you stay in there? Two home? years. Two years. And when did you make the transition to venture capital? What happened was uh, I decided to go to business school. Okay. Because I realized that I didn't want to be an engineer and a software engineer for the rest of my life. Uh, and I thought that maybe there was some combination of business and technology that would be interesting. Okay. So I applied to business school uh, and, I, and I actually wrote my essay mm -hmm. to business school saying I wanted to be in venture capital because I, okay. I had learned about venture capital and I thought it was a really interesting marriage of technology and business. And you know, I, I lived in New York City, and you know, I had Wall Street around me, and yeah. I, and so I kind of felt like that was a way, a way you could be in the tech business while living in New York and, City. And you went to Wharton, right? Yeah. Okay. And graduated Wharton when? Eighty-seven. And did you go straight from there into venture capital? Actually, I went straight to venture capital, summer between first and second years at Wharton. In 1986, I got a job, and I never stopped working for that firm for ten years. I. I worked there the summer, and then they said to me, well, you're living in New York, but you're commuting down to school. Could you work Mondays and Fridays? And I said, right. yeah. So I worked Mondays and Fridays uh, the second year I was at Wharton and didn't even apply for a job anywhere else. I, I literally it, it went straight, went straight there. And venture capital was very different then. What I think a lot of people don't realize is even back then, the brand name firms, Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia, Axel, Greylock, Severn Rosen, like the great historical funds, we're like a hundred million dollar funds, hundred fifty million dollar funds. We were managing a when I when I joined Euclid Partners, which is the firm I joined, they were managing their second fund, and that fund was a twenty million dollar fund, and their first fund was a four point three million dollar fund. Uh, so that tells you, like, you know, four point three was small. Yeah. Twenty was not that small. Right. Right. You know, hundred was big. Those were the the the, the marquee <laughs> firms were hundred million dollars. Exactly. Right? Tell me what your what was the job like back then? I mean, it must be very different than. Were you an associate, an analyst? I was an associate. And uh, what was the associate job back then? Well, so I worked for a couple of uh, venture capitalists who were in their fifties at the time, and they were not technologists, mm -hmm. and um, and they so like so they were super young, right? No, no, they Gosh. were they were in their they were they were they were my age. I know. <laughs> um, so they they wanted me to help them figure out personal computers yeah. and PC software and networking and and they figured I I knew this world and 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 they didn't. So it was really mostly helping them navigate the various investments that were coming their but way. Were you doing research? Were you calling entrepreneurs? I was not calling you... entrepreneurs. Okay. They had deal flow. Okay. Um, I was doing research, fundamental research, and helping them evaluate the companies that walked in the door. Right. And uh, I remember, for example, we had this investment in a company called Banyan, mm -hmm. which made one of the two most Banyan. popular mm -hmm. local area networking yep. systems. Mm -hmm. Competitor was Novell. Right. And Banyan had much better technology. It was based mm -hmm. on Unix. Mm -hmm. It worked beautifully, mm -hmm. um, whereas Novell was kind of janky and mm -hmm. kind of like kludged together. Um, and I was convinced that Banyan would win the market because it was yeah. better technology. Yeah. And that was an early lesson. Novell killed them, yeah. crushed them. 
That was when I learned that best technology doesn't win markets. Do you remember, <laughs> like, what do you think about Novell stood out? Like, what? They had the distribution model. They basically understood how to sell through uh, land resellers, mm -hmm. and they and, and and Banyan went too high up. They went kind of more enterprise, mm -hmm. and and Novell just cleaned their clock. And Novell also did one other smart thing, and the reason I know is because I spent a lot of time implementing Novell lands back then. I'm sorry you had to do that. <laughs> I was in, it was in the 80s, and my skills were, I started doing computer programming and then setting up local area networks. I was in high school right. in the 80s. Um, and that was my specialization was local area networks. But they had like a certification program, so they certified a bunch of people and then individuals started promoting Novell because you felt like you were Novell right. certified. Right. They put people in business in effect, and those people, those were entrepreneurs, and those entrepreneurs pulled them into the market. And, Makes perfect and, sense. You know, I have to say, like, Fred, we, we still live in this world where <clears throat> understanding how to distribute your product, how to support it, how to get the community bought into it still matter greatly. And yet, a lot of the companies we're funding today have an overemphasis on technology. Do you agree? Do you think, has life changed now? Or can you just have great tech today and win? If you're selling to the developer community, mm -hmm. I think that um, having the better product is, is a real advantage. But if you're selling to the enterprise, um, then, and you're selling to a business person, an HR exec, or you're selling to a, um, I don't know, a CFO or something like that. I'm not sure that that's... Well, let me say it this way, though. My assertion would be um, best product or great product is necessary but not sufficient. I agree. So I'm not saying you should build a crappy product, but I think a lot of the understanding of how to move product and how to sell and support and get a community pushing product matters a lot. Absolutely. Um, so you were there. Did you make partner at Euclid? Or? I did. Okay. I did. I became a partner in... 91 or 92, um, and I made a bunch of investments there. I made about 10 investments personally, okay. where I sourced the deal, led the deal, joined the board. Yeah. And, uh, and then in 1985, uh, the internet really happened. 95. Yeah, what did I say? 85. Oh, yeah, okay, 95. sorry. Uh, the internet really happened in 95. It started happening in 93, 94, yep. and I, I got there pretty early. I um, started making investments, and in '95, I just I just felt uh, that this was gonna just be the thing. Netscape Navigator, everything. And Netscape, yeah. and you could see uh, people were building um, the the equipment. You know, mm -hmm. the the switches. Um, the uh, people were building uh, software infrastructure for the internet, and it just it just felt to me like this this was gonna be the big mega trend for yeah. tech investing. And um, I just didn't think that Euclid, as it was constructed, was going to be able to invest. We were a generalist firm. We did healthcare. We did biotech. We right. did um, enterprise software. I just didn't think we were well positioned. And I decided to leave and, and start uh, a firm that would just do internet investing. And this was Flatiron? Yeah. And so were you a founder and you founded it with people? Or did someone already have capital together? We got lucky in the sense that I had, uh, in 94 and 95, um, I had started doing a lot of internet investing and I had started bringing in, because we never had a lot of money at Euclid, 
the biggest fund I ever worked on there was $25 million. Right. So we would make a $750,000 seed, and maybe we could follow that with a $1 or $2 million Series A, but then we had to get bigger pockets. And so I started working with the folks at Chase, um, who were doing venture, and SoftBank, who were doing venture, and they started following me in multiple deals, and these deals were working. We were getting exits yeah. very quickly, and they said to me, we'll back you. Yeah. And each one kind of wanted me to come work there. Um, and I said, no, I want to do my own thing. And I en ended up teaming up with Jerry Colonna, who had been with CMG, which was another internet-focused mm -hmm. venture firm. And Jerry and I teamed up together and got Chase and SoftBank each to commit $75 million. And, and we were off the race. And you started that in 97? Six. 96. Summer 96. And it was, you were the two principal partners? We were then. the only partners for three years. And then in 99, we added a third partner, Bob Green. I'll tell you a great story. So Milton Pappas, who was one of the two partners at Euclid who, who brought me on board, um, told me that uh, the first deal in every fund that they had raised was kind of a, a stinker. And he thought that the reason was that it had taken them out of the market for six or nine months while yeah. they were raising the fund. So they weren't in the flow, and then they were itching to do a deal because they wanted to get the management fees cranking, and so they would pull the trigger on yeah. a deal that really wasn't a great deal. Yeah. So I said to Jerry, I said, we can't fall to that trap. So here's, yeah. what, here's how we're going to solve that problem. Yeah. I said, you're going to pick the very best company out of the CMG portfolio yeah. that's going about to do an A or a B, and I'm going to pick the very best company out of the Euclid portfolio that's about to do A or B, and we're going to lead those rounds. Okay. And so we led a company called Multex that came out of my portfolio at Euclid, and a company called Geocities that came out of his portfolio at CMG. Both of those companies ended up going public. Okay. Multex ended up selling to Reuters, went public at maybe 200 or 300 million, and sold to Reuters for not much more than that, maybe okay. 300, 400 million. Great win for us, because yeah. we had paid, I don't know, 10 or 20 pre, so it was 10x for us. Yeah. But Geocities... Two billion, right? We we paid twenty million yeah. pre, and it sold for three and a half billion. Three and a half billion. Uh, and now we had sold a little bit along the way, so the numbers won't work out exactly like that. But it was a massive home run yeah. for us. And um, and I remember um, I remember when we were closing GeoCities, um, there was um, there was a, a company that doesn't even exist anymore. I think it was called Webmetrics. I'm not sure, but it was it was the first kind of like. Um, leaderboard for the internet. Yeah. It would show you the, the, the sites that had the most traffic. Right. And um, the day before we closed our GeoCities investment, they, 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 they cracked the top 10. Mm -hmm. And I said to Jerry, we're paying $20 million for one of the 10 most popular internet yeah. sites in the world. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, this is going to work out great. Yeah. And it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> now, I remember reading a story, I can't remember, it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. It was talking about that era because you could almost imagine that all VCs are rich. Right. The reality is, first of all, when you're new in the business, you're paid a very good salary relative to normal wages, so it's hard to complain about that. But you also have pretty huge contributions because you're having to invest your money back into the fund. So I know many partners, well-known partners, who have never had a big exit, they didn't sell a software company, and they're, they're like having to borrow money to pay their capital contributions and everyone just assumes like VCs are all loaded. What struck me was a story, and I don't know if you remember it, which was either you or your wife were at a cash machine 
calling the other person. No, it was Joanne. To, Joanne calling you to say, is there enough cash for me to take out of the machine to buy groceries? Yeah, what happened was um, we were living hand to mouth. Look, at, 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 at Euclid, I never made more than $100,000 a year. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't ever really kill it on the... And, and just to be clear, by human standards, that's a lot of money, but people's assumption about how much all VCs make, I think, can well, be distorted. But Joanne stopped working, and so we had three kids and a mortgage uh, and a house in the suburbs, yeah. and, you know, I wasn't making more than $100,000 yeah. a year, and, you know, you can do the math. It's yeah. not, it, it's, it's, you can, you can, I'm not saying you can't live on that. We lived on that. It was fine. But we were living... Month to month. Month to month. And, you know, she would go and take out cash and go to the shopping market, uh, supermarket, and buy buy uh, food for the week, and she said, there's no money in the cash machine. Yeah. And I said, don't worry about it. We just sold GeoCities to Yahoo. Um, put it on the credit card. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, you guys weren't loading up the credit cards, but. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. I, I don't really like debt. Yeah. I'm not into debt. And so, but, you know, it, that story always stood out to me. It's just, uh, I think people have this assumption, again, that VCs are just walking in cash, and obviously, once you have a super successful fund like that, life changes, right? But if I look at, I'm gonna take Dave McClure. The earliest years of Dave McClure when he started his fund, like that guy was driving the oldest, most beat up car, back of the plane, scraping together, trying to get sponsors to fund his trips or whatever. It's not like he had no money, but. Well, when, when, when Brad Burnham and I raised uh, Union Square Ventures, the first fund, uh, in 2003 and 2004, we were paying for everything. Yeah. So we're 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 flying all around the country and and, yeah. and even to the even to Europe trying to get people to invest in our fund, uh, and we we paid for all the flights. Yeah. We paid for all the hotels. We paid for all the rental cars out of our own pocket. Yeah. And and we would share a hotel room. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's you know, we'd get you know two beds in a room, and you know, it would cost us, I don't know, two hundred bucks a night, and so it was a hundred bucks each instead of two hundred bucks each. Yeah. And, you know, um, you just. You know, it, it, you think that the VC business is, is a wash in money, and if you do well, it is a wash in money. But not everybody uh, is making money hand over fist when they're first getting started. But in a way, I think that ethos has served you well because you, I'm guessing, when you look at entrepreneurs, you're looking for those characteristics of what it felt like to be you during those years, right? Those lean years. Yeah, I like I like to see the hustle in yeah. an entrepreneur. I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know, somebody who's Dave McClure is a great example of hustle, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything he does is hustle. He yeah. just he exudes hustle, right? And you know, he's scrapping it together and making it up as he goes and faking it until he makes it and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I mean, that's what entrepreneurs have to do. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And so you, what, what made you leave Flatiron and how did you decide and how did we, you... It wasn't our choice. What happened was um, early on in the history of Flatiron, SoftBank uh, decided they needed to get out of the relationship because they were going to change their strategy about how to do venture capital. And they wanted to do it through their own operation, which became SoftBank Ventures, which became Mobius. And they didn't want to become, they didn't want to be limited partners anymore. Right. Chase bought them out, mm -hmm. which was great except for the fact that we then had one sole limited partner, which right. was Chase. And then Chase merged with J.P. Morgan and Hamburg and & Quist. And all of a sudden, they had three private equity groups and three venture capital groups. And the whole thing kind of got you know, restructured. And at the very same time all that was happening, the internet blew up. Right. And they just decided they didn't really want to be in, in business in the way they were in business with us. Yeah. Um, and so they said, um, 
we're not going to do this anymore. And that was a, I mean, that was a really tough moment for me. It was a punch to the gut, really, is the way I took it personally. Yeah. Um, my partner Jerry decided that he was just going to uh, go work at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase because mm -hmm. they, they they wanted us to all they wanted us to fold up Flatiron and, and go become partners there. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So what I, we ended up negotiating settlement. Jerry went over and became a partner at J.P. Morgan Chase. My partner Bob Green and I stayed at Flatiron. Um, we let everyone else go. Um, and the two of us basically agreed to manage the portfolio out for for very little compensation. Yeah. Uh, and um, and they agreed to contribute about what turned out to be about twenty five or thirty million dollars of capital uh, to allow us to to triage the portfolio. What, uh, where did you meet Brad, and what was his journey? Uh, Brad and I had done this company, Multex, I mentioned before. Yep. Brad and I were on the board of Multex together, mm -hmm. and it's a great story. So Multex was started by a guy named Isaac Kareev, who's a uh, he was a Belarusian entrepreneur, uh, immigrated to the U.S. Brilliant guy, um, but classic entrepreneur, very stubborn, very technical, brilliant. Um, and he had built a system using client-server technology. Right. Uh, and the internet came along, and and I remember at a board meeting, Brad said to Isaac, "Well, we could just." you know, essentially use a browser as the client side and use the internet as the network and just run the application in the cloud. Yeah. And Isaac said, that'll never work. And then the company struggled because their cost basis running a client server mm -hmm. implementation was too heavy and too expensive and customers, their mar they were making like 10% margin, yep. right? And, and so they couldn't raise money. They're about to go out of business. They had three months worth of life. We show up at a board meeting and Isaac said, I've come up with the answer. We're going to port the application to the browser. We're going to use the internet as the network, yeah. and we're going to basically run the run the back end in the cloud. Yeah. And Brad across, uh, jumped across the table, wanted to kill the guy. And I was like, Brad, Brad, yeah. I know what's your idea. Let it let it be his idea. Let it be his idea. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and so like I've heard you talk very positively about Brad over the years. I've heard many people talk very positively about Brad. You know, you're very public because you keep a blog and right. you're well known. And Brad chooses not to. Like, what's the yin and yang there for the relationship? Like, where does he add to you? Brad has most of the good ideas. Um, like, the good idea he had for Isaac. Um, he's very kind of thoughtful. Uh, he, he thinks deeply about markets and, and competitive dynamics, uh, about uh, just the underlying kind of fundamentals of a business. And, uh, and, and I'm much better at kind of taking whatever roadmap we come up with and helping, you know, evangelize it, yeah. right? So that's kind of how our relationship has always been. And that gets me to be the front man. I get all mm -hmm. the accolades. Um, and I think... And he's okay with that. He's, I, think he's, I think he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've had this conversation and, you know, it could almost sound like, oh, is Fred just being falsely humble? But privately, you've said that to me that, you know, he's a deep thinker and inspirational and giving you ideas. And but it's not just Brad, though. Yeah. I mean, uh, Albert, who was the, was the third partner to yeah. join, well, was the first person to join us. Yeah. Before Brad and I went out to raise Union Square Ventures, Albert and Brad and another person, Etienne, were trying to raise a venture firm yeah. called Semaphore Capital. 
And this was in 2002. Yeah. Talk about really bad timing. Yeah. Nobody wanted to invest in venture in 2002. Albert had done Delicious, or what did he do? No, Albert had an incubator in uh, New York City called LC39 okay. that Brad had been on the board of. So Brad and Albert and Etienne had spent a year trying to raise Semaphore. Didn't work. And then I said to Brad, why don't you and I try to do something? So we did it. And then Brad was always saying, you should meet Albert, you should meet Albert. So we got Albert to work on two of our portfolio companies, yeah. Dakota, where uh -huh. he basically did a temporary CTO gig, and then Delicious, where he basically was Joshua's business partner. Yeah. And after they sold Delicious to Yahoo, Albert joined us as our third partner. And he's the most technical of you guys. Albert is the he most technical of anybody I've ever met. I mean, yeah. he he did MongoDB, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. he can go toe to toe with any technologist in the world. Yeah, I I, I say that. I know it's a boastful, proud statement, but I. Honestly, I've seen it. Yeah, like he and it's a it's really a, good. It's a rare skill to find someone that technical who also has both good investment judgment and ability to play the board role. He has learned those pieces of the businesses as we all do. Um, I I had the opportunity to learn those pieces of business uh, in an apprenticeship with Milton yeah. Bliss, mm -hmm. uh, and then Jerry and I kind of on our own, kind of learned it again. So by the time I started Union Square Ventures, I had a lot of those skills. Um, and Albert, you know, learned those on the job. Uh, I, he's always been a great investor. Yeah. Uh, I think he's got, a he's got a very mathematical mind mm -hmm. and he really understands investing. His but, the, but, the, but the piece of it that I think, like me, that Albert had to work on was how to be an effective board member. Right. I think both he and I, um, being engineers, uh, see a problem and we want to solve it. Well, speak and, about and speak about that. What what is it to be an effective board member? Because on the one hand, I see board members who barely seem to have read the materials. It feels like you're kind of reminding them about yeah. the business. Or I see others that are crazy financially astute but don't have a product sense. I see some, and people criticize ex operators for this. Is like wanting to make decisions on behalf right. of so I, I think I think, What's the I role? think Albert and I think both Albert and I um, maybe fall early in our career felt too much in that third category of seeing a problem, knowing what the answer is, and basically just saying to the team, well it's obvious, you know, do that, right? Yeah. And and I think that what I learned and I think I've watched Albert learn this too, is that you're a coach. Yeah. Right? And you're not the quarterback. And so you can't really I, I suppose Bill Belichick can tell Tom Brady whatever the hell he yeah. wants to tell him. But what I've learned is that if you frame the problem yeah. for the team in a way that uh, it becomes their idea, yeah. as opposed to you telling them to do it, yeah. that's the move. Yeah. And, I, and that's what I think effective board members do. They, they help the management team decide to make the decisions that are right decisions instead of just telling them that those are the right decisions. And there's something in that which is framework versus answer. What worries me sometimes is if you go straight to answer, you're making a judgment based on your generalized experience and your intuition about this business that you probably know pretty well, but you don't live it every single day. So I worry sometimes because I hear board members who will jump in and say, this is what you need to do. And some teams will say, okay, we need to do that, right? And <clears throat> sometimes it's the wrong answer. So I find like providing frameworks of, this is generally why, this structure is why I think that's the right answer, but you guys need to come to that conclusion. 
um, in some ways, it's like giving them tools to actually make the final decision, which may be different than what your decision was. Yeah, well, the other thing that I've learned is that um, each company and each management team um, will be successful with a slightly different playbook, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that the right answer for company A in terms of you know, who the right VP of sales to bring on board mm -hmm. might not be the right answer for company B. It depends on the team, the strengths and weaknesses of the team, strengths and weaknesses of the product, what market you're in. There, I don't think that there is you know, a, a right, answer. right answer every single time for every single company. Yeah. There are a couple places, yeah. like financial management might yeah. be a place where best practice is kind of best practice, but you know, a lot of this other stuff is more art than science. And knowing when those, that's the case, that's important. It's an interesting thing, the coach metaphor. So all too often as VCs, again, we're problem solvers. We see financials, we see product, we see it maybe through an engineer's eyes or a salesperson's eyes. But there is something to be said about the coaching role, which is how do you get a CEO to effectively work with his or her leadership team? Now, Jerry Colonna ended up going into building a business right. like that. I think there is an incredibly important role to be played, this actual coaching thing, because so much of success is psychological. Well, and I so wish, how do you, I, I how mean, do you think you about know, that? From my own sort of selfish ego desire, I would love to be that person for the CEOs and entrepreneurs I work with, but I realize that my relationship with them is a little loaded. Yeah. And then I'm never going to have that completely trusting relationship that's required. So I'm a huge fan of a coach yeah. who can play that role, mm -hmm. who can really be there for the CEO, right? As opposed to, I got a lot of stakeholders to represent. Yeah. Uh, and you know, with the CEO struggling, I'm gonna have uh, people who report to the CEO coming to me and saying things. I'm gonna have other board members coming to me and saying things. I'm gonna have my own partners coming to me saying things. It's, it's when you're a, a director, maybe the lead director, that's a, that's a different role than a coach. And in a way, the, in order for it to be effective, the CEO, I think, has to trust the coach to be talking to his or her team to get a 360 evaluation. Of course. And the goal isn't just, well, let me give feedback, tough feedback to the CEO. I think it can also be like, okay, now that I know the personalities of your top team, how do I get you to work together? Like, how is this, per is this person carrot or stick, heat or light? Well, Jerry told me that the, uh, Jerry's doing a boot camp uh, now uh, around co-founder mm -hmm. issues. And this is something that I never focused on as much as I probably should, but it seems obvious in hindsight that a lot of the struggles of a lot of the companies I've worked on um, are resident in the dynamic between the two founders, or three founders, or four founders. I mean, that's a complicated relationship. Yes. You know, and you know, I'm sure you've gotten caught up in the middle of it. I've I got have. caught up in mm -hmm. the middle of it. Um, so having a coach to help with that is very important too. Yeah, I've often said the role of a VC is chief psychologist. <laughs> yeah, it is. But you know, like I said, it's loaded. Yeah. Right. That's like kind of like having your wife be your chief psychologist. It's yes. effective to a point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Outside help sometimes makes sense. Um, so you raised Union Square Ventures, if I mm -hmm. rewind. It wasn't that easy to raise from mm -hmm. memory. No, it took us 18 months. 18 months. 
and we got a lot of no's. What was the reception in the market? like? Nobody wanted to talk about venture capital because venture capital as an asset class was performing miserably. Nobody wanted to talk about the internet. Yeah. The uh, internet had basically been proven to be a scam by that point, which of course it wasn't, but that's how everybody was interpreting it. And, um, and nobody wanted to back a brand new firm. Yeah. So, you know, we, we ended up, we ended up cobbling together a $100 million fund with about 25% of that came from our capital and some very close friends of ours okay. from the business. Yeah. Um, and then 75 million of it came from uh, like five or six investors. Yeah. And then we, then we had a few more people that wanted to pile in at the end. Um, so we ended up increasing it by a little bit, but um, you know, we, we probably got turned down by over a hundred investors wow. and we probably only got, as I said, six or seven to say yes. So it was really hard. Um, it was also a great time to raise a fund. Yeah. That's the, that's Seems, the, that's the other side of the coin, right? Is yeah. when nobody wants to do something, that's when you want to do it. Yeah. But do you sort of feel like that as an investor in tech companies, the, you know, I'm looking for unconventional wisdom or are you looking for ideas that have worked somewhere and you're going to be fast follower? In terms of what our strategy is? Yeah. Or your personal view on investing? I particularly like to get out in front mm -hmm. uh, and make bets on things that I think are going to happen uh, as opposed to wait until it's obvious and then try to uh, get in on them. But I think both strategies work. It just, to, you know, some of it is, is how you like to, uh, what, you, what you like as, a, as an investor, what, what intellectually interests you. Um, we also like to uh, have relatively small pools of capital. Yeah. And I think it's hard to be a follower when you have relatively small pools of capital because when, and I, when, I, when, when a market or a company becomes obvious, everybody wants to pile in. And so valuations get bid up. And if you can only write a $5 million check or a $3 million check, it's hard to get a lot of ownership. So for us, I think it's best to get out in front of things. And you and I have had an offline chat about new VCs. Mm -hmm. And I was saying to you at the time, what I've observed with a lot of new VCs is a rush to make investments. And I think you called it like getting notches on your belt. Right. And I, you're, you're not talking about new VC firms, yeah, so, you're no, talking about new VCs. New VC firms or new VCs in a firm. Yeah, it's certainly, I think, I think that's true in both cases, but I think it's particularly true with somebody who's getting into the venture business and they want to start putting because they feel belt. like a measure of success is I've done these three deals. I need mm -hmm. to get my name on deals. But the interesting thing is I feel like you need a while to sort of figure out what's my right deal sources? Where am I going to get the best high quality stuff? What is uniquely me? What can I be known for? Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like if you rush into it, all you're doing is giving yourself a whole bunch of work for stuff that's likely not to perform as well, well in year well, two. Like, well, the point that Milton made about, yeah. you know, your, your first deal is going to suck <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. So maybe you should just get it behind you real quickly, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Matt Kohler's first deal um, at Benchmark was Instagram. He did okay. He's got a great track record. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for most people, most mortals, yeah. you don't start off hitting a home run or a grand slam or whatever you want to call that. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, what I learned about venture over several investments is there's like a cycle, like your first three or four years as a VC, it's about doing deals and going really deep into those companies, but you wake up in year four, five, and six, 
And then suddenly you're not only doing new deals, but you're trying, like all of these companies get to their next level where it's either being sold, having to raise more capital, founder quits, having to do a shutdown, right? And this then you're like, this is a lot when, of work. Oh, this is when you just get crushed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what it takes companies usually two to three years before they um, turn out to be failures and they need to be wound down or they get to something interesting and then there's exits and there's management changes and there's big rounds and and so when you're first doing deals, oh, it feels so easy. Oh yeah, you know, I can do another deal, I can do another deal, I can do another deal. And all of a sudden you got eight deals and then all of a sudden the crunch comes and it's just like you can't even breathe. Yeah. It's like you don't even know what to do. There's problems all over the place. So, or opportunities. Yeah. And the thing that I don't think you can do is you can't just focus on your good things. Yeah. Because someone's got to take care of, I mean, you made the mess, yes. right? Someone's Pottery got to, barn roll, right? Yeah, exactly. So, it's, I've just been there so many times. I got there in, at the end of 2000, and, middle of 2011. I think I was on 15 or 16 boards. Yeah. And uh, it just, I was just completely out of bandwidth. And uh, most of those companies I'm still working on. Yeah. A few of them have died, a few of them have exited. So there has been some reduction in uh, bandwidth uh, that, that's being taken from me. But uh, it, you know, it's taken me a while to work off of that. When I tell entrepreneurs how to reference check VCs, I always say ask to talk to, or even if you don't ask, find out the companies that they were involved with that didn't work. Mm -hmm. If a company goes up and to the right, <clears throat> everyone loves their VC. Why wouldn't you, right? Because they basically become cheerleaders. Not that they're not helping, but it's all goodness, right? It's high class problems. Knowing how someone performs or how honorable they are when things are tough is what matters. And I have seen some VCs who just walk away from problems because mm -hmm. they know they're not going to make money and they don't own the responsibility. Some who become assholes, you know, during problems, uh, blame culture. You know, are they willing to roll up their sleeves and try to do the hard work right. to get a a recap done or help you rehire a new CTO because they quit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I find that very instructive. Yeah, I think it's great advice. I, 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 I generally suggest the same thing. There's a couple other things that I really uh, would advise people to do when, they, when they're thinking about who to take money from. I think it's, I've written this and a lot of young VCs hate it when I say it, but if you can take money from the lead partner mm -hmm. in a firm, Mark, yep or the junior partner in a firm over here, take the lead partner every time. Because right. it's the junior partner doesn't have as much cachet in the firm. Mm -hmm. It's harder for them to get the follow-on rounds done. They're being judged, mm -hmm. and their issues around that then end up becoming your problem, even though it shouldn't be. And whereas when you deal with the senior partner in a firm, they've probably achieved a certain amount of success in the business. Um, they can approach each and every problem without worrying about how it's going to impact them back in the office. Yeah. And they can put the company's needs first. Yeah. And I think that's what you want. Well, let me, uh, I'm not going to play devil's advocate because um, I wouldn't say that's wrong. Uh, but let me at least give people a framework to think about it, okay? The starting point I always say, and I don't think this will be controversial, 
is when you approach a partnership, you should do your homework and think about that partnership. And there are many sources where you can find out what are the politics? What's the, like if, if there's six partners, are there two that haven't gotten a deal approved in a long time? Or are there two that are kind of golfing a lot and kind of out to pasture or two that are just not that interested in early stage or whatever? There are so many people to find it. First of all, portfolio companies that mostly will tell you things. Law firms. Right. Law firms have a pretty good sense of what's going on. Associates at various firms can right. tell you. The trade-off between senior partner and, and let's say emerging partner. Emerging partner, if they have political support, they have more capacity. That's true. In my earlier days, when I had three portfolio companies, I was like all in on those companies. I'm on nine boards now, and I don't want to say I'm unavailable. I'm available to the ones that need me when they need me. But there is a trade-off, and just understand what you're signing up for. Your macro point I 100% agree with, which is make sure the person you have has political support. Right. I just want to give you an example, one that you know well, which is Greg Bettinelli. So Greg's been with us about 18 months. Um, but Greg has been so successful in 18 months with us I said to Greg, like, obviously we're a partnership and we all have to decide, but if you have really high conviction over a deal, I'm in. I want to debate you and tell you why I think it's shit, if I think it's shit or whatever, but I wanted him to know that he had support because in my early days, that didn't exist. Right. And I feel like I, my, the way I'm starting to see my role is giving people the scope to make hard decisions, to make mistakes, but also know if you make a mistake, culturally what I'm looking for is people who own their mistakes. Right, yeah, the thing that, the thing that I have just been burnt over so many times, and I've been doing this for 30 years yeah. now, so I'm not talking about in the past three years, I'm talking about over the totality yeah. of those 30 years, is partners in a deal yeah. who don't support the company. Right. And look, if the company Definitely does not deserve support. Yeah, that's one thing. But you know, well, you know, we're we're not feeling it. You know, you guys can you guys can do the round. We'll you know we'll sit sit this one out or whatever. Like, I just bullshit. I, I it, it kills me. I hate it. Yeah, and and I see it. And it, most of the time, it's because the partner uh, who leads the investment of the firm cannot build the case internally. Yeah. That's, I think that's a fair point. So the only thing I was saying is like, in a broad partnership, right. there are often times where someone may not be necessarily the lead, but has had success enough that they've right. earned the political yeah. capital well, or they're trusted enough. Right. Well, it may be that you have a firm like Upfront or mm -hmm. a firm like USV where everybody who's a partner mm -hmm. is a full-on partner. Yes. Right. I mean, it's Andy, John, yeah. Albert, Fred, and Brad. Yeah. And 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 all we're all equal partners. Yeah. Every single one of us has the full trust and confidence of each other. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not second guessing anybody. And yeah. we'll talk about it if if Albert wants to do a, a insider round on a company that's really struggling. We'll say, okay, well, okay, we'll do that. You have conviction. We'll do that. But let's make sure that we're getting compensated for doing something that, you know, it, nobody else is putting money in this we're company. We're stepping up. <laughs> we're stepping up. But you said a key word, and this is something I want entrepreneurs to understand, which is conviction. Right. And you should look for it at the time of investment. Does that person have high conviction for what you do? Because in good times and bad, they're going to have to carry that conviction 
right. into their partnership. Right. And that's sometimes a hard thing to do. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's easier if you have stature in the firm, um, but it's still a hard thing to do. I, I find it difficult, you know, sometimes going in and advocating for a company that's struggling. Yeah, it can be hard. Um, what do you think entrepreneurs, let's talk a little bit about capital, capital availability. Mm -hmm. These days, the definition of a seed round is somewhere between 500,000 and $10 million. Yeah, it's a little weird, isn't it? Yeah, and people are able to raise a lot of capital, not everybody, Certain people are able to raise a lot of capital and very quickly. Talk about the role of capital constraint and creativity, like the tension between that. Well, you know, I, I'm a huge fan that less is more. I mean, I, we, we, we have very small funds in a, at USV. I mean, we could raise a billion dollar fund if we yeah. wanted to. Um, and, you know, we, we've been shrinking our fund sizes. I'd like to get to a $100 million fund. I don't know if we'll get there. Last fund we raised is $150 million of outside capital and then some partners capital. Um, so I think that there are some instances where you need a lot of capital to execute a business plan. But in many cases, it's not true. Um, but because lots of capital is available, the company takes on the capital. And then that ends up resulting in uh, no constraints on decision-making, and so company decides to do five things instead of just one, and they do five things poorly instead of one thing well. And I just think that if you are forced to figure out how to get from here to here on a million bucks, you'll figure out, if you're good, you'll figure out how to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I, I generally am not a fan of, you know, bigger seeds, bigger A's, bigger B's. In the later rounds, once a company has truly hit escape velocity mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they've built sustainable enterprise value, I, I care about it a little less. Yeah. But early on when it's not clear the company's gonna be successful and the decisions they make are gonna lead to whether or not they're gonna be successful or not, I think too much capital is a bad thing. What's the right amount to raise if you're five people, you've built a product that's about to launch or just launched? I mean. I, 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 I mean, it, 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 there's no, it's really hard to say, but I would generally say at the seed round, raise 12 months of capital, at the A and B round, raise 18 months of capital, and C, C and beyond, go for 24 plus. That's, that's a simple rule of thumb. Yeah. Right? Like, a seed that gives a company four years of runway, what does that say? Yeah. I mean, it's the people raising the money don't think they're going to make it in a year, right? Why would you raise four yeah. at a seed price? Yeah. It's kind of a really bad, We've seen it and it's a bad seen it. signal, right? Yeah. That an entrepreneur would be willing to take four years of, of dilution when, you know, what they really should do is take a year of dilution and then in a year increase their value 3x. Yeah. It means they either don't know what they're doing or they don't have confidence that what they're doing is going to work. We're in a strange environment. We have the irony of, on the one hand, <clears throat> this amazing opportunity because we have two and a half plus billion people online at really fast speeds with mobile devices and social networks and one click enabled to purchase. So companies are growing. The ones that work grow faster than anything we've seen in history. For sure. But as a result of that, they're raising these huge rounds in the private markets. 
And the bigger the rounds they're raising in the private markets and the longer they're staying private, everyone else is realizing they need to get into private. So you end up with corporate venture capital, Google, Rakuten, Alibaba, Baidu, putting in money almost price insensitive because they're not necessarily looking for the same returns as a financial investor. You have mutual funds and hedge funds trying to get in early. And so what this has produced is in the late stage, like insane valuations. Right. And, you know, what do you make of that? Like, you know, Bill Gurley said last week at South by Southwest that he predicts this year there's going to be a dead unicorn. What's happening in that market? Is it, does it trouble you? Well, we don't participate very much in that market. No, we have companies in our portfolio who find themselves in that stage and access that market. Um, so I guess we have some, we do participate in some ways in that market. Um, I, I, I would agree with a lot of what Bill has been saying. I think the, good, the right answer would be to encourage our companies to go public a little earlier. But the problem with that, as you know, is that many of these companies haven't invested in the legal infrastructure and the financial infrastructure, the financial controls, and they actually couldn't figure out how to get through an IPO process if they tried. Right. Um, and convincing them to spend three or four million dollars uh, and invest in that earlier on is a hard argument to make. But I do think it would be, a, it would be great if, if, if Dropbox was a public company now, if Uber was a public company now, if Airbnb was a public company now. Um, I think that would be better. It would be more people could participate in the value creation that those companies are creating. Um, the, the companies would be valued by the market, by the real market, as opposed to some, you know, it's, it's not a real market. Because what, yeah. what happens when these rounds get done is it's an auction. Yeah. It's highly constrained. There's no liquidity. Everybody wants in. Yeah. And so you can, you know, the clearing price becomes a price that's, that companies would never trade at in the public mm. market. So argue this. Argue that um, you're talking to an entrepreneur and they can raise at a $3 billion valuation where normal metrics might say they're worth $600 million. Let's just right. pick arbitrary numbers. Why wouldn't they raise $200 million at a $3 billion valuation? What would worry you about that? Well, one, are they going to be able to raise another round at a higher price? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have seen a number of companies that have really struggled uh, to raise uh, follow-on rounds um, or even get public because the price that was put on them in the private markets was too high. Box is a good example of this. Um, and then they did this funky deal. I, I don't know all the specifics, but I know enough to basically construct a narrative around it. They did this funky deal to get a, get a private round done that was effectively priced by how it performed in the public markets. The performance was weak, so a bunch of additional shares were issued, causing more dilution, and then the whole deal fell apart. Now right. the stock's trading at, I don't know, lower than its IPO price. I know that. Um, that's a bad, that's a, that's just a bad outcome all around. Right. And now that affects Dropbox. So we Because made, Box is the comp to Dropbox. Yeah. And that, now Dropbox, you know, might have trouble raising a round at a step up from their last round price because people are going to point to Box and say, there's your comp. You know, they're trading at, I don't know, X times revenues. So you should be trading at X times revenues. The whole thing just kind of builds on each other. We may have a cohort of what are otherwise really good companies that are stuck in a way in the system where if the public equity markets won't allow them to go public at prices greater than what they raised, 
you might get this pipeline of stuff that just can't go public. And then if it can't go public, the, 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 the money that they raise is going to get more and more structure around it, right? Because that's the only way they're going to access that capital is they're going to have to put structure around it. And the structure is going to end up biting them in the rear end. It's, it's, it's going to be bad. I would think that those companies should exit via M&A and, 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 clean, and clean out all that mess. And just to say, so people who don't understand structure, it's basically terms that go in the deal that might give those investors like extra juice if there's a downside right. scenario or exactly. whatever happens. It's not going to be a clean deal. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's, that's on the horizon. We're already starting to see some of that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we, we had a portfolio company uh, that could go public in the next year. I'm not going to say what it is. Um, and they were, they were going to do, do a private round. They wanted, the company, for some stupid reason, wanted a very big valuation. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they could get the big valuation is that the investors wanted to effectively defer the pricing of this financing until the company went public right. and then negotiate a discount to that. I was like, that's dumb. Why not just finance the company at what the market thinks the price is for your company yeah. and be fine with it? I feel like there's too much trying to game the system right now and the behavior of watching their peer group is forcing it. I mean, I won't name names and it's actually people I like, but there have been publicly people saying, I feel like I need to get a billion dollar valuation because if I don't, it's gonna be hire, harder to hire employees. It's gonna be harder to get public recognition. And I feel like that's a terrible way to make decisions in a business. If you need a billion dollar valuation to hire employees, mm. you're a shitty recruiter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's even a perverse incentive because you've now just made it more expensive for employees who are joining in terms of their stock price. And I think this is mostly uh, a Silicon Valley thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't see it in New York. You know, I, we're recruiting a VP engineering for one of our companies. I did a, an hour-long phone call with a candidate today. He didn't even ask me what the valuation of the company is. He asked me a lot of questions about the product roadmap, what the market structure is, what the vision for the company, all the things you really actually want to know. Yeah. He didn't ask me, you know, what the last round price was, what the carrying valuation is, what the 498. He may get to that at some point, you yeah. know, when he's negotiating his options, but he's not going to make his decision on that. He's going to make his decision on the things that you and I would make a decision on, which is, do I believe this company has a, you know, really bright future? And do I want to spend four years, five years, six years of my life there? Talking about bright future, I want you to tell the story, if you feel you can, about how you got into Twitter. How did you invest in Twitter? Why nobody else was, I mean, Twitter isn't, wasn't back then. I mean, it was a popular technology, but people were so skeptical about whether it would be a good business. Yeah, I just uh, was using the product and I, and I had been blogging um, for about four years at that time. And, I, and I, I knew that blogging was not gonna be a mainstream thing. It's too damn hard. You do it, I do mm -hmm. it. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard. Mm -hmm. So I thought that, but I, but I saw the benefit of it. Yeah. Um, that if you put your ideas out there, um, people will come to you. Yeah. It's like, it's like a flypaper. Yeah. So I, you know, so I started advocating, you know, God, you can really build a following by blogging. I knew it needed to be simpler. Twitter came along and back then they called it a microblogging yep. service. I remember. And, and, and I was like, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that can get, you know, hundreds of millions of people blogging. And, so I, I, I said to Brad, we got to do this. Brad and I got on a plane, we flew out, and we basically were interviewed by Jack and Ev. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there, was a two, there were two or three other firms that mm -hmm. were in the mix. We weren't the only ones. 
And uh, I think what Jack and Ev did, I've said this many times, so, so a lot of people who are watching probably have heard me say this, I think they knew what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so they were asking us all these questions, already knowing the answers, and they were just looking for fit. Yeah. They were looking for an investor who wanted to execute the same playbook they wanted to execute. Right. And some specific examples were, should we go out and cut deals with carriers mm -hmm. to get Twitter on deck? Remember back yeah, then when on, on deck, deck was a big thing? On deck, yeah. And we said, don't waste your time with that. Mm -hmm. Said, market's moving, carriers are not gonna be as important. Um, what you really wanna just do is just focus on organic growth, get people using it for the right reasons, um, and, and things will take care of itself. I think that's what they wanted to do anyway. Yeah. And I think other people were giving them different advice, which they weren't really aligned with. And so I think we ended up winning that deal because they saw a good strategic fit in terms of with us, in terms of how we thought they should build the business. And so that's how we won the deal. And again, we could tie it back to that advice about conviction. Right. Because in a way, as an entrepreneur, you spend all your time pitching just hoping to get money. Right. But you could equally turn the tables in a discussion and say, well, what do you think we should do? And get people talking. The interesting thing about the psychology of asking for advice, the more people talk, the more they like you. Right. I know it sounds strange, but the more they talk, the more they like you. Right, of course. And, the, and, and deep down, like people like to give advice. So getting people talking actually is quite a good thing, but it also shows you if they have a knowledge for what you do and a conviction of what you do. And I find not enough entrepreneurs do that. Yeah, well, um, I think Jack and Ev did a really, really good job with us. They put us through the paces. Um, we, never did, we never did any due diligence on them, which is kind of interesting, but I knew we wanted to make this investment. Yeah. And so Ev called me up uh, a few days later and he said, we like you guys, can you send us a term sheet? Mm -hmm. And I sent him a term sheet. It was five on 20 pre, mm -hmm. 25 post. And he called me back and he said, um, we'll do it but would you be willing to cut back to make room for other people? And I said, great, you know, we'll, we'll speak for the entire five. Yeah. But we're willing to take 3.75. So okay. we could buy 15% of the company and the other million and a quarter, whoever, whoever you want to put in. And, uh, and that's, that was the extent of the deal. And the funny thing, <laughs> Fred, for a pre-revenue early stage company with a fail well back then, like we, it, didn't, we didn't even got to the fail well then. Yeah. The, the fail well yeah. happened after, after we invested. But, <laughs> but, but 20 was a big price. I know it doesn't sound like a big price in today's world. I'm not saying you overpaid, but like 20 wasn't like you weren't lowballing. No, I, I felt like I gave them a very fair deal. I think they probably felt like it too because. How did you determine that? How did you decide 20 and not 15 and not 17 and not 25? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. Uh, you know, I think something like that's a gut instinct. It just felt right to me. Yeah. And uh, um, nowadays, you know, people are getting those valuations with a lot less than they had. So, you know, it seems like a, it seems like a cheap valuation. Yeah. But at the time, it was not. At, in today's world, people's anticipation of how many billion-dollar companies can exist people now have convinced themselves that a billion's nothing. So when they're writing checks and they're saying, oh, I'll pay 50 pre, no problem. They're saying, I can still get 20X on this. It's pretty tough to build a billion dollar company. And I think the artificial markets in late stage 
have given too much confidence to early stage investors? Well, you know, for much of my adult uh, career, you needed to have a half a billion to a billion dollars of after-tax net income mm -hmm. to be worth a billion dollars. Yeah. We're talking about profits after you've paid the government of a yeah. half a billion to a billion yeah. dollars. Yeah. I mean, a half, uh, no, no, no. For, to be worth a billion. 50 to 100 million. 50 to 100 million. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and now people have a billion dollar by the way, by the way, that implies, I, I do this math all the time for entrepreneurs, that implies revenue of 500 million to a billion at normal profit margins, right. normal uh, EBITDA right. margins. And <clears throat> the whole valuation equation is based on growth now. If you're going to grow at exponential rates forever, of course, then you can justify paying up at lower revenue multiples because you know there's higher growth. But the fundamentals of how much a company's worth haven't changed. It's hard, it's hard to grow at more than 50%. It's hard to grow between 50 and 100% a year for a long time. Yeah. Eventually, the, the size of your business gets so large. And they, you know, we have this one company in our portfolio, Lending Club, and I've just done a, we have a bunch of marketplaces in our portfolio, and, and I've looked at marketplaces a lot, and Lending Club trades at a higher valuation of its gross revenues or gross, gross transactions or revenues or earnings, and I think the reason is because it's in a market consumer lending that's mm -hmm. so big yeah. that people think it can grow 100% a year for five or 10 years. years. Yeah. Whereas a lot of other companies, they're just going to hit a natural, the market size, they're yeah. going to start capturing too much of the market and they're just not going to be able to continue to grow at that rate. That is, I think, the thing that investors are missing um, is that they think that these growth rates can go on for a lot longer than they, they probably can. Three last quick questions. One is, I would love to hear non-traditional advice that you have for entrepreneurs. What... I'll ask it slowly so you have a minute to think about it, but what unique advice do you think your experience of working with startups for 30 years that often isn't said in the public market, what advice could you give entrepreneurs? Well, one thing I would say is that if you are a great founder, mm -hmm. if you can conceive of an idea and get it launched and get a product in market and get a company built and you're good at that, you should do that instead of running companies, mm -hmm. right? A lot of entrepreneurs see that what they should do is be the long-term CEO of their company. I, I actually think for many entrepreneurs, that's not the right answer. Um, you know, for many entrepreneurs, I mean, I, I would imagine if you were a great entrepreneur and you had 10 or 20 companies in you, why wouldn't you spend two or three or four years starting a company and finding a CEO and then starting another company and finding a CEO? If you do that, you could build a portfolio of you know, you could build a portfolio of like 10 or 20 companies over your career. I yeah. think that would be much more value creating. And the skills that it takes to succeed in your first four years are very different than the skills well, it takes. There, the, the number of people that I know who, who can do the first part, yeah. idea to business, again and again and again, mm -hmm. are very small. The number of people who can be great CEOs is way larger than that. Yeah. I'm not saying that being a great CEO is an easy thing to do, but being a good executive and a good manager is, is I think, a much larger set of people have that skill than being a great entrepreneur. So that's the thing that I think entrepreneurs, I don't know why they get hung up on, I want to be the CEO of my company yeah. forever. 
maybe that you know maybe it's an ego thing or whatever. Particularly young entrepreneurs feel yeah. that. And it's not because I'm in the business of throwing people out of their companies. I mean, if somebody wants to be the CEO of their company, I'm going to try to help them be the best CEO they can be. But I'm not sure it's really the right answer for them. Do you care when you write the check if you can imagine that person going all the way? Does that bother you if you can't imagine it? Uh, I've been surprised mm -hmm. by the ability for people to become good CEOs. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I, I don't think we get caught up on that. I think we're much more caught up on do we think that they can build a company? Can they get a product in market and can they use that product to build a company? We know that there's going to be some moment where it's, there's a question about whether they're the right long-term CEO for the company. And I don't relish getting to that conversation, but I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. Uh, I, and, it's not, and it doesn't get in the way of us making investments. Second question, what non-traditional advice that you don't generally read do you have for VCs, for people who maybe have gotten in the industry in the last one to six years that you've learned? It's different than what seems like is happening in the market today. I would focus more on uh, learning how to be a great partner for entrepreneurs than building a great track record. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that if you, build a, if you build a reputation for being a great partner to entrepreneurs, the track record will take care of itself eventually. Um, and uh, that means making time for mm -hmm. your portfolio companies, really mm -hmm. rolling up your sleeves and helping the entrepreneurs. And so, you know, if you, if you could go out and make 10 investments, mm -hmm. or you could go out and make three investments, but if you made three investments, you could really invest in becoming a really great you know, partner for entrepreneurs, I would, I would choose that path. Uh, I read a really interesting quote from Randy Komisar mm -hmm. that he, I, I didn't tweet it because it was said during the Ellen Powell trial and I didn't want to sound like I was somehow like right, taking side, trying to stay out of it, but it was something like being a great VC is as much about, and he was talking about colleagues, as much about being a great partner as it is about being the smartest person or being right. right. And that really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Like, we're a team. People are going to make bad decisions. We need to encourage and be great partners, which in many ways comes down to being great people. Mm -hmm. And that just really stuck with me, but I just felt like I couldn't publicly tweet it because I didn't want to sound like I was right. jumping in. Um, and finally, talk about you know the last ten years. I'll restrict you to ten years. Uh, the deal you regret missing the most, um, or at least in your top three. So I don't know about that. I I I guess you know the easy one for me is Airbnb because I've written a bunch about it. Airbnb <clears throat> is everything that we want to invest in a company, mm -hmm. and we could have invested in it um, right coming out of Y Combinator, mm -hmm. which is you know, the stage at which we are most excited about investing you know, really early on in a company's life. And we loved the founders. And we knew that we, I mean, I knew in my gut they were going to be successful. We just got caught up on the fact that at the time, it was mostly people renting out you know, a room or worse, you know, a couch on their living room. Mm -hmm. and. We just 
didn't have the imagination to realize that you know within three years people would be renting out mansions on it, and it just was a, just a complete and total miss on our part. And so I, I regret I regret that the most. You know, it's easy to say they're worth billions and billions of dollars. We would have made a fantastic financial return. But the thing that bums me out the most is it is. When I think of what is a quintessential Union Square Ventures deal, that's Airbnb. We should have been in that deal. We yeah. <laughs> and have you changed anything as a result, either in terms of how you talk about deals after you do them, or staff, or anything else? The one thing that we are more cognizant of, cognizant of as a result of that, uh, Brad and I have both said it multiple times, is that when they pitched that deal to us, we were in our late 40s and early 50s, and we could not imagine ourselves renting out a room in someone else's apartment or, or renting out a couch in someone else's apartment. And so we're like, people will never do that. Yeah. And the younger people on our team mm-hmm. were like, I would do that. And so what Brad and I say is like, we're not going to reject anything that we wouldn't do and the younger team would. Okay. Right. On, if, we may reject it for other reasons, yeah. but not on that reason. Right. So, so you need to listen to younger people. There is a well, sort of generational input. I think that's important. Well, it's not. It's not just that that we need to listen to younger people. It's just that um, had we been a little bit open, more open-minded um, about that conversation, and that the younger people in our partnership were urging us to be more open-minded about it, we might have got the right answer. Well, so you know, my equivalent is Snapchat. Mm-hmm. because we had a company in L.A. called Tiger Text that was doing disappearing text messages. And, you know, they're a fine business, and I'm not uh, criticizing them, but just the name Tiger Text, because it was after Tiger Woods, it had all the text messages that he sent out, and everyone put it in the press, and so they were saying, Tiger Text, it'll disappear. And, of course, now you have Confide, and you have Cyberdust, and... Now we all understand how important it is to occasionally have stuff disappear. But in my mind, I was thinking, here's a company enabling philanders. Like, is that what I want to be behind? And, of course, they turned out to be a, better, a much better company than that. So when Snapchat came along, I'm like, so, so this is now pictures for philanders? I just couldn't put myself in the mind of a 22-year-old. Me at 22... God help the world if there were photos of me like at a bar drinking and being published, right? I just couldn't put myself in that shoes. Well, that's an example, I think, of the same problem, which is that, you know, we should not be investing in the things that we want to use. Yes. We should be investing in the things that everybody wants to use, and we may not want to use them. Well, we have five associates, and they're all pretty young, and I'm trying much harder to understand their psychology, what interests them, how they view a thing differently. And again, I may still go with my judgment. I just, I want to understand the generational. And I think it's, sometimes people confuse it with um, things are different now that we don't understand technology. It's not that it's age and stage. At our age, having disappearing photos, I'm not at parties getting drunk where I'm thinking about how, occasionally, but not often, <laughs> where, where I want the stuff to disappear. And I'm not always at volleyball practice with a bunch of other people or whatever. So I think age and stage, things change, and you need to make sure you're tapping into that youth culture, I think. So. Yeah, no, we, we've been very successful with it in many cases. Tumblr, primarily used by teens. Kick, primarily used by teens. You now primarily used by teens. So we have a bunch of portfolio companies, but we 
we just made that mistake. And you know, and it, it you know, we keep a box of Obama O's Cheerios in our conference room to remind us of that mistake because the way that they raised their first dollar uh, Airbnb, they went to the uh, convention where Obama got uh, nominated, the Democratic convention in Chicago in was it six, 2006, yep. mm -hmm. and they bought generic Cheerios, yeah. poured them into a box that had been printed up that said Obama owes, and sold it for like 40 bucks a box. Yeah. And they sold a lot of them. Yeah. They, they sold like thirty or forty thousand dollars, and right. that they use it as seed capital. And I love that story so much. They brought the box into the meeting, and I love this story so much. I asked them if they could keep the box. I knew these guys were hustlers. Yeah. I mean, they were complete and total hustlers. And like, it just kills me to this day that I didn't literally take out a checkbook in the meeting and write yeah. them a check. You know what I mean? That's what I should have done. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Listen, I don't want to take up more of your time. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you coming in today. So thanks, Fred. Great. A lot of fun. Awesome.